1958, psychologist David Weikert took up the job of being Director of Special, Ed Special Education at Ypsilanti, Michigan. At the time, schools were segregated and all the African-American students in the town attended one primary school, the Perry School. Weikert noted that the school was run down. Instead of a playground, it had a field filled with thistles. Many of the African-American students ended up repeating grades, entering special education or leaving school early. Yet when Weikert gave a presentation to school principals about these problems, they responded defensively. One sat with arms tightly folded. Another stood by the window smoking. A few left the room. When he pressed them to act, they said there was nothing they could do. Black students were just born that way. So Weikert came up with an alternative solution. Because I couldn't change the schools, well obviously you do it before school. In the late 1950s, the only institutions that looked anything like preschools were nursery schools, focused purely on play. By contrast, Weikert was interested in the work of psychologists like Jean Piaget, which suggested that young children's minds are actively developing from the moment they're born. When it came to early intervention, Weikert noted, there was no evidence that it would be helpful. There wasn't data. So he decided to put Piaget's theories to their first rigorous test. In 1962, the Perry Preschool opened for children's aged three and four. About 100 children applied to be enrolled. Half were admitted, half remained as a control group. The selection was random, literally made by the toss of a coin. Former Perry Preschool teacher Evelyn Moore remembers how the program pushed back against the prevailing wisdom that a child's intelligence was fixed and that many of the children in the community were retarded. She saw something different. The children knew the name of baseball players. They recalled the words to songs. Their parents had hope. When Moore visited their families at home, almost all had pictures on the wall of two men, JFK and Martin Luther King. The preschool curriculum was highly verbal. Children visited a farm, a fire station and an apple orchard where they picked apples and cooked them into apple sauce. Months later in winter, they went back to the orchard to see the seasonal change. When Evelyn Moore asked the children where the apples had gone, one child reflexively replied, teacher, I didn't take them. <laughs> There's a lump to my throat. The Perry Preschool program lasted only two years. But over the coming decades, researchers tracked the outcomes of those that participated and the randomly selected control group. By the time they were in their 20s, those who'd been to preschool were more likely to own a car, own a home and have a steady job. They are also less likely to use drugs and less likely to be on welfare. By age 40, a quarter of those in the preschool group had been to jail, compared to half in the control group. The leading economic analysis of the program estimates that for every dollar spent on Perry Preschool, the community gained between $7 and $12. By far the biggest benefit is reduced crime, showing if you target early intervention at people with a 50-50 chance of going to prison, you can change lives at a very reasonable cost to the broader community. But while randomised evaluations have underpinned significant intervention in early years programs, they've also shown that it's not 
game over after the first thousand days of a child's life. Schools matter. Indeed, great schools can transform lives. One randomised evaluation looked at schooling in New York's Harlem district. Outcomes for students in Harlem were dreadful. A study once found that the, young the life expectancy for young men in Harlem was lower than for those born in Bangladesh. Cocaine, guns, unemployment and family breakdown created an environment which disadvantage was perpetuated from one generation to the next. Founded in 2004, Harlem's Promise Academy is no ordinary school. It's got an extended school day with classes sometimes starting as early as 8am and after school activities continuing through to 7pm. There's remedial classes on Saturdays and a shorter summer break than in most American schools. The school operates on a no excuses model, emphasising grit and perseverance. It's assumed that every child will go on to university. Both students and teachers are heavily monitored with an emphasis on test score gains. With up to 20 applicants per place, the Promise Academy uses lotteries to allocate spots, an approach that allows researchers to compare outcomes across the randomly selected students who get in and those who miss out. One way to benchmark the impact of the Promise Academy is to note that the average black high school student in the United States is two to four years behind his or her white counterparts. Yet the mostly black students who won a lottery to attend the Promise Academy improved their performance enough to completely close the black-white test score gap. As the lead researcher pointed out, this overturns the fatalistic view that poverty is entrenched and schools can't make a transformational difference. He claims the achievements of the Harlem Children's Zone are the equivalent of curing cancer for these kids. The randomists are also endeavouring to improve teaching. For example, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation recently conducted a randomised trial of coaching programs for their teachers. Each month, teachers sent videos of their lessons to an expert coach who worked with them to eliminate bad habits and try new techniques. By the end of the year, teachers in the coaching program had seen gains in their classroom equivalent to several additional months of learning. The British Educational Endowment Foundation has so far commissioned over 100 evaluations, many of them randomised, to test what works in the classroom. Among the randomised evaluations that produced positive results are personal academic coaching, individual reading assistance, a Singaporean designed mathematics teaching program, and a philosophy based intervention, encouraging students to become more engaged in classroom discussion. And with so many evaluations, they can readily compare the size of the results. To get a one month improvement for one student, personal academic coaching costs £280. Individual reading assistance costs £209. The mathematics teaching program costs £60. And the philosophy based intervention costs £8. So while all the programs worked, some were a whopping 35 times more effective than others. And in some cases, the Education Endowment Foundation trialled programs that sounded promising but failed to deliver. The Chatterbooks program was created for children who were falling behind in English. Hosted by libraries on a Saturday morning, led by trained reading instructors, the program gave primary school students 
an opportunity to read and discuss a new book. Chatterbooks is the kind of program that warms the cockles of your heart. But alas, a randomised trial found that it produced zero improvement in reading abilities. Another Education Endowment, Endowment Foundation trial tested the claim that learning music makes you smarter. Students were randomly assigned to music or drama classes and then afterwards tested for literacy and numeracy. The researchers found no difference between the two groups, suggesting either that music isn't as good for your brain as we thought or that drama is equally beneficial. In a similar vein, a recent randomised trial of free school breakfast programs New Zealand School found that it reduced hunger rates by eight units on the Freddie Satiety score, in case you're interested. <laughs> but free breakfasts didn't boost school attendance and they didn't boost academic achievement for low-income ch children. Educational randomisters were even evaluating how to get more low-income children to university. In Ohio and North Carolina, researchers worked with tax preparation company H&R Block to identify low-income families with a child just about to finish high school. Half the families are randomly offered assistance in completing a university financial aid application, a pro process that took just eight minutes. Two years later, the children who'd received help applying for financial aid were a quarter more likely to be enrolled at university. Because children whose parents didn't attend university often lack basic information about the college application process, modest interventions can have huge impacts. In Ontario, a three-hour workshop for Year 12 students raised college attendance rates by a fifth relative to a randomised control group. In regional Massachusetts, peer support provided by text message raised the odds that Year 12 students would enrol in college. Now, for the most affluent, it doesn't matter so much where the government works. They can rely on private healthcare, private education, even private security. They're less likely to be unemployed. They have family resources to draw upon in hard times. For the top 1%, dysfunctional government can be annoying, but probably not life-threatening. But for the most vulnerable, Government can mean the difference between getting a good education or struggling through life unable to read or write. Those who depend on government, depend on knowing that the programs government is delivering actually work. In Melbourne, the Sacred Heart Mission has been working closely with long-term homeless people since 1982. A few years ago, the organisation proposed to trial a new intensive casework program targeted at people who'd been sleeping rough for at least a year. When they pitched the idea to their philanthropic partners, one donor urged that it be evaluated through a randomised trial. Guy Johnson, who worked in community housing and would eventually help conduct the research, was pretty sceptical at first. People in the community sector, he told me, freak out at the word experimental and prefer to select participants based on need, not chance. But Johnson came to regard randomisation not only as the most rigorous method for evaluating the program, but also as the fairest way of allocating the service. The Journey to Social Inclusion experiment was Australia's first randomised trial of such a high-intensity homelessness program. For the 40 or so people in the treatment group, it provided intensive support from a social worker who was responsible for just four clients. 
This caseworker might help them find housing, improve their health, reconnect with family, access job training. Another 40 people in the control group didn't receive any additional support. So, what might we expect from the program? If you're like me, you might have hoped that three years of intensive support would see all participants healthy, clean and gainfully employed. But by and large, that's not what the program found. Those who were randomly selected into the program were more likely to have housing and less likely to be in physical pain. But journey to social inclusion had no impact on reducing drug use or improving mental health. And in fact, those who received intensive support were more likely to be charged with a crime. On one theory, because when you've got housing, it's easier for the police to find you. By the end of three years, just two people in the treatment group had a job. The same number as in the control group. And while it's disappointing that the program didn't bring most participants back into mainstream society, it's less surprising when you learn about the people it was supposed to assist. In many cases, they were abused in childhood. The mother of one participant used to put Valium on the child's breakfast cereal. Most had used drugs for decades. They were used to sleeping rough. Few had completed school or possessed the skills necessary to hold down a regular job. They had children of their own. More often than not, they'd been taken away by children's protective services. And so the journey to social inclusion program is a reminder of how hard it is to turn around the living standards of the most disadvantaged. If you've been doing drugs for decades, your best hope is probably a stable methadone program. If you're in your late 40s with no qualifications and no job history, a stable volunteering position is a more realistic prospect than a steady paycheck. So unless we properly evaluate programs designed to help the long-term homeless, there's a risk that people of goodwill, social workers, public servants, philanthropists, will fall into the trap of thinking it's easy to change lives. There's plenty of evaluations of Australian homelessness programs that have produced better results than this one. Because none of those evaluations was as rigorously conducted as this one, there's a good chance they're overstating their results. Blockbuster movies are filled with white knights and magic bullets, moonshots and miracles. But in reality, most positive change doesn't happen suddenly. From social reforms to economic change, our best systems have evolved gradually. Randomised trials put science, business and government on a steady path to improvement. Like a healthy diet, the approach succeeds little by little through a series of good choices. The incremental approach won't remake the world overnight, but it will over a generation. Randomised trials flourish where modesty meets numeracy. As British randomister David Halpin puts it, we need to turn public policy from an art into a science. That means paying more attention to measurement and admitting that our intuition might sometimes be wrong. One of the big thinkers of US social policy, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, recognised that evaluations often produce results that are solid rather than stunning. When faced with a proposed new program, he was fond of quoting Rossi's law, named after sociologist Peter Rossi, which states that the better design the impact assessment of a social program, the more likely the resulting estimate of net impact is to be zero. But Rossi's law doesn't mean we should give up hope of changing the world for the better. 
We need to be sceptical of anyone peddling panaceas. But the belief that some social programs are flawed should lead to more rigorous evaluation, more patient sifting through the evidence till we find a program that works. The best randomisters are passionate about solving a social program, a social problem, but sceptical about the ability of any particular program to achieve its goals. Launching an evaluation of our organisation's flagship program, Read India, Rukmini Banerjee told the audience, and of course, the researchers may find that it doesn't work. But if it doesn't work, we need to know that. We owe it to ourselves and the communities we work with not to waste their and our time and resources on a program that doesn't help children learn. If we find this program isn't working, we'll go and develop something that will. Randomised trials don't have to be expensive or time-consuming. One firm in the United States offered employees up to $750 if they could quit smoking for a year. Those randomly chosen for the program were 10 percentage points more likely to quit. Turns out that an effect size this large means it would be worth firms with plenty of smokers offering the program even if they didn't care about the health of their employees. That's because smokers take more breaks during the day and more days off during the year. Another simple randomised trial was conducted by the German government in 2010. They posted out a cheerful blue brochure to over 10,000 people who'd recently lose their lost their jobs. Bleibensi active, stay active, the leaflet urged unemployed people. And it boosted employment rates among those who received it. Each leaflet cost less than one euro to print and post but boosted earnings among the target group by an average of 450 euros. If you know of another government program with a payoff ratio of 450 to one, please come and see me afterwards. <laughs> In 2013, the Obama White House, working with a number of major foundations, announced a competition for low cost randomised trials. The aim was to show it was possible to evaluate social programs without spending millions of dollars. From over 50 entries, the three winners including, included a federal government department planning to carry, carry out unexpected work, health and safety uh, inspections, and a Boston non-profit providing intensive counselling to low-income youth, hoping to be their first, the first in their family to graduate college. Each evaluation cost less than $200,000. The competition continues to operate through, through the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, which has announced it'll fund all proposals that receive a high rating from its review panel. So what is holding us back from conducting more randomised trials? When parliamentarians are probed on their misgivings, the chief concern is fairness. Half of all Australian politicians, according to a survey conducted by Phil Ames and James Wilson, and a third of British politicians, worry that randomised trials are unfair. As medical researcher Ben Goldacre points out, we need to get better at helping them to learn more about how randomised control trials work. Many members of parliament are worried that randomised trials are unfair because people are chosen at random to receive policy interventions. But this is exactly what happens with pilot studies, which had the added disadvantage of failing to produce good evidence on what works and what does harm. Rejecting randomised trials on the grounds of unfairness also seems at odds with the fact that lotteries have been used in advanced countries to allocate school places, housing vouchers and health insurance to determine ballot order and indeed to determine 
who goes off to fight in the Vietnam War. One way of thinking about the ethical issues of randomisation is that it turns on what we know about a program's effectiveness. Adam Gamoran, a sociologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, agrees that if you're confident that a program works, it's unethical to conduct a randomised trial. But if you're ignorant about whether a program works and a randomised trial is feasible, Gamoran argues it's unethical not to conduct one. The problem is we live in a world where failure is surprisingly common. In medicine, only one in 10 drugs that looks promising in the lab ends up going through stages one, two, three randomised trials and getting approval. In education, only a tenth of the randomised trials commissioned by the US What Works Clearinghouse produce positive effects. In business, just a fifth of Google's randomised experiments help them improve the product. Rigorous social policy of experiments find that only a quarter of programs have a positive effect. Once you raise the evidence bar, a consistent finding emerges. Most ideas that sound good don't actually work in practice. So how do, how do we institutionalise randomised trials? In 2010, the British government became the first to establish a so-called nudge unit to bring the principles of psychology and behavioural economics into policymaking. The interventions were mostly low cost, such as tweaking existing mailings, and were tested through randomised trials where possible. In some cases, they took just a few weeks. Since its creation, the tiny nudge unit has carried out more randomised experiments than the British government had conducted to date in that nation's history. Following the British model, nudge units have been established by governments here in Australia, in Germany, in Israel, the Netherlands, Singapore and the United States and are being actively considered in Canada, Finland, France, Italy, Portugal and the United Arab Emirates. But I think we can do more. Over recent years, a range of Australian reports from the Auditor-General, the Productivity Commission, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, the former COAG Reform Council and the Grattan Institute have highlighted the need for better evaluation of government programs. Just last year, the House of Representatives Standing Committee on Tax and Revenue brought down a bipartisan report recommending that the tax office make use of behavioural insights techniques, such as randomised controlled trials, before full implementation of new initiatives to determine if some cha such changes are indeed better than current practices, and if so, which changes are the most effective. There have been productive discussions in the public service around improving the quality of evaluation including the Office of Development Effectiveness, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the Indigenous Evaluation Committee in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and the Beta Unit, also Prime Minister and Cabinet. But at present, the evaluation conversation is too fragmented and too ad hoc. And so that's why I'm delighted to announce today that a shortened Labor government will create an Office of Evaluator General in the Treasury. The mandate of the Office of the Evaluator-General will be to work with departments across the government to conduct high-quality evaluations of government programs, preferably randomised trials. The Evaluator-General will collaborate with existing evaluation bodies, such as BETA and the Office of Development Effectiveness. We'll also work with the Evidence Institute for Schools, a body that Labor has announced will create within the Department of Education and Training. However, while the Evidence Institute for Schools will 
both synthesise existing research and produce fresh findings, the focus of the Evaluator-General will be on conducting new evaluations. I want to acknowledge the work that Nicholas Gruen has done in this area. As he points out, there's considerable value from creating a body in which people are able to develop a true expertise in evaluation and which offers career progression. But while Nicholas has proposed a model in which the Evaluator-General sits outside government, perhaps with a status akin to the Auditor-General, our approach will be for the Evaluator-General to be located within government. In our view, this will produce better results for the community because it creates a more collaborative relationship between program experts and evaluation experts. Unlike auditing, good evaluation is very hard to do afterwards. This is particularly true of randomised trials, which must be set up before a program is rolled out. We also see the Evaluator-General as being better able to encourage departments to make effective use of administrative data if it takes a collaborative approach rather than purely playing an oversight role. The Evaluator-General will be funded with $5 million a year starting in 2019-20, which isn't long from now. To conclude, over the course of the 20th century, randomised trials have turned health into a profession that relies, relied on eminence-based medicine to one grounded in evidence-based medicine. Companies like Netflix, Coles, United Airlines, Amazon and Google have built randomised trials into their business model. Intuit founder Scott Cook says he aims to create a company that's buzzing with experiments. Whatever happens, Cook tells his staff, you're doing right because you've created evidence, which is better than anyone's intuition. If you use the internet today, odds are you're part of a randomised trial. Yet when it comes to social policy, the vast majority of programs designed to help the most vulnerable are grounded more in greybeard beliefs rather than empirical evidence. The alternative to rigorous evaluation is often to ask the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion. As Australia faces challenges such as inequality, climate change and indigenous disadvantage, it's time we raise the evidence bar. If governments want to boost innovation and raise productivity, it's vital we have the best tools for the job. At a time when government budgets are under pressure, there's just no excuse for con governments continuing to fund programs that don't work. Conducting more randomised experiments isn't a an excuse to give up on the problem. We don't abandon the search for a cure for cancer just because most cancer drugs to emerge from the laboratory don't make it through clinical trials. And similarly, the goals of cutting crime, raising test scores or achieving full employment should be pursued even if a specific program comes up short. The more we ask, what's your evidence? The more likely we are to find out what works and what doesn't. By evaluating social policies, discarding those that don't work and boosting those that do, governments can have a far greater impact on reducing poverty. An experimenting society is likely to be a fairer society. Scepticism isn't the enemy of optimism. It's the channel through which our desire to solve big problems translates into real-world results. Given the chance, the randomisters can deliver a better world. 
one coin toss at a time. Thank you very much.